This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Once again, my name is Miguel Panabella, and I'm joined by Associate Professor Maggie Hennefeld. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Very welcome. Um, so tonight we are talking about The Great Dictator, a very audacious condemnation of Nazi Germany and fascist powers in a moment when the U.S. was still neutral during World War II. And the film was actually banned in several countries. Maggie, can you talk more about how The Great Dictator was subversive for its time? Um, so yes, The Great Dictator, I think, was absolutely subversive at its time, not least of all for its you know, depiction of an authoritarian world leader as an incompetent buffoon, right? Via the Hinkle character. But um, I think it was more importantly subversive for precisely the reasons you've already mentioned that it was banned in a number of countries across Nazi occupied Europe and kind of unevenly in Latin America. Like um, I think it was allowed to play in Chile, but banned in Paraguay. It was eventually released in Costa Rica against protests from Italy and Germany. So there's really no better hallmark of a subversive film than its prohibition by a system that finds it fundamentally threatening. Um, the context in the US is a little bit more complicated. It, I think it was subversive, again, not least of all, for how it um, engages with topical um, political events through such broad farce and absurdity. I, I mean, that's really the sweet spot of subversive satire. But it was also super popular among domestic audiences. It was embraced by FDR and the New Deal administration. It was, I'll add, uh, decried by the Republican America First uh, Senate committee who were hardcore isolationists. So at the very least, it was subversive to American Republicans, which, you know, is always a great thing. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, too, what purpose did the movie serve for the general public back in 1940? I mean, do you get the sense that cinema goers were simply looking to laugh at Hitler? Can you say more about the reception of the film, um, just more generally? Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned, it was wildly popular. Chaplin had a lot invested in the film. So there were actually rumors leading up to the film's release that it might be pulled. Um, because simply because world events were unfolding so quickly. And actually from the timeline, the conception of the film in 1937, Chaplin took two years scripting it and then about a year um, filming it from late 1939 to early 1940. I mean, uh, Nazi Germany invaded uh, Poland, Austria, um, Belgium, short, Belgium shortly after the release of the film. And meanwhile, I think early in the production schedule, Americans thought that the Nazis' defeat was inevitable. And that perception really, really changed as the film inched closer to release. So a lot of Americans, the collective consciousness was kind of shifting from isolationism to the urgent need for intervention because America's Americans were sort of starting to get the message that uh, the UK might not be able to hold out. And The Great Dictator, in addition to just being a hilarious comedy in ways that I'm sure we'll talk about, Miguel, um, 
really intersected kind of uniquely with the unfolding of geopolitical events and even intervened actively in kind of shaping Americans' perception about the necessity of, of, of America to enter the war. Yeah, um, I was especially thinking about this movie. Um, I mean, Patrice mentioned it earlier in her introduction that, you know, this is a film that we is holds special relevance, especially today with all the impersonations of um, authoritarian regimes around the world. Um, and I think we can see many comedies very similarly engaged in those kinds of critiques of rising fascism. But at the same time, many critics have charged leaders like Donald Trump, for instance, as being beyond satire, right? The argument is that reality is somehow more absurd than anything that fiction can come up with or that like satirical headlines from The Onion or caricatures on Saturday Night Live somehow pales in comparison to the buffoonery and the, and the cruelty of real politics. So in, I was curious, in what ways might comedy be insufficient to critique today's politics? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I mean, to your point that political reality now seems more absurd than satire. This is actually a question on the midterm exam for my comedy course. I give them a real news headline and an Onion article and they have to tell which is which. And usually they can, but sometimes they get it wrong. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the authoritarian um, leaders, if we want to call them that, who, who you know, are, um, I mean, Trump, for example, maybe more resembles Hinkle than Hitler. He's obviously um, extremely cruel and dangerous, but he sort of incorporated um, his own self-parody into his persona. And there was a lot of commentary after the election, like Emily Nussbaum had this great piece in The New Yorker, and she said, we memed a president into existence, that he exploited satire, satires critiquing him as a platform in order to stay in the public eye. And of course, like with the kind of climate of bitter culture wars in our country, laughter at the political other is just used to kind of rally the base and increase political divisiveness and resentment. So I'm not sure that anti-fascist satire or satire against Trump or other sort of um, buffoonish uh, authoritarian leaders like, um, I don't know, Silvio Berlusconi or um, uh, Vladimir Zelensky in the Ukraine. Um, uh, people, yeah, it's um, this this kind of neo-authoritarianism is so absurd in itself. Like you were saying, it's, it's questionable how much work satire actually can do to critique or dismantle it other than kind of inflaming political antagonisms. This is obviously something I think about a lot. Yeah, I really like your point, too, that there is a kind of element of self-parody baked into Donald Trump. I mean, not only, you know, his political career, but obviously before he was a television personality. And so there was this element of performance um, that I think was baked in, you know, from the very beginning. And so there is this, that kind of like that media personality, right? That's very similar, I think, to Hinkle, right? Because he's always performing for the camera. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I did want to add that even if satire can't do the kind of political work that we once imagined it could during, you know, the heyday of The Daily Show, The Colbert Report in the mid 2000 aughts, 
I still think, I mean, it's such an important coping mechanism. It really gets us through the day, given the onslaught of the news cycle, like opening the New York Times, watching MSNBC is like, you know, can feel triggering. Um, laughter is essential. Satire defeats fear with laughter and it can get us through the day and give us hope and help us feel politically engaged um, at times when the present is so destabilized and the future feels increasingly unimaginable. I think that's the special power of satire. And maybe um, recognizing the limits of satire or of laughter at political parody to sort of do the work of activism uh, maybe that was more dangerous than the situation we find ourselves in today. Like when I was in college and was, you know, binge watching The Daily Show, I felt like my laughter was inherently political, maybe even to the point that it could um, take the place of activism. And, you know, meanwhile, um, you know, uh, there all this money being infused into politics and Republicans were sort of um, uh, solidifying their, like, um, uh, power over the judicial system, for example. I think that if satire uh, leads us to underestimate our enemy or not to take activism more seriously, that's maybe even more dangerous than not. Um, and at least I think we've been disillusioned about how far satire can actually go in recent years. And that's probably a good thing. I'm sure we'll probably get back to that point about the place of satire today, but I wonder what is effective in Chaplin satire here? So I think obviously he seems to derive most of his humor from those angry speeches and the nonsense language, but then you also have Tomania's very incompetent bureaucracy. Um, and of course the absurdities of all the rituals, right? Like how they salute one another. That's like a recurring joke. Um, so can you talk more about like what is effective in his satire? Yeah, well, the film is so on the nose. He watched a screening of Leni Riefenstahl's documentary about Hitler, Triumph of the Will at MoMA. And I mean, used it to uh, inform his parody. And it's, I mean, just the um, names alone, Napoloni for Mussolini, Hinkle for Hitler, um, you know, uh, bacteria and Tomania, um, really thematizing madness, the kind of um, insane ex excesses of Nazism uh, is obviously, um, you know, it's it's unmistakable what the film is referring to. I find, in terms of his use of sound and dialogue, the sort of guttural impersonations of Hitler's speeches more effective than um, the kind of straight up political messaging at the end, particularly when the Jewish barber takes the platform in the closing act of the film. And also the play with incongruities and in length, like how Hinkle will speak for five minutes and then the stenographer will type one word or the translator will have like a very short um, uh, transcription. Uh, and then, you know, he'll, um, uh, you know, make like a, a quick comment or clarification. And it's like, you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> five pages of action. Um, but yet the Hinkle character is so narcissistic. He's obsessed with his own image. He's constantly looking at himself in the mirror. He's completely incompetent. He has to scapegoat the Jews because um, of the labor strikes in his country because of the economic unrest and class instability. I think that's a really incisive part of the great dictator's messaging, how fascism arise, arises from conditions of class inequality and economic depression that the state itself can't um, resolve through social programs. 
environment through Black, through social programs. But I think, I have to admit, I feel like the most, in my mind, the most kind of ingenious satire in the film is at the beginning in the opening World War I sequence, which harkens back to uh, Chaplin's own World War I satire from 1918, Shoulder Arms. I love the physical comedy. I love the scenes in the ghetto of Paulette Godard, of Hannah, um, you know, bonking the stormtroopers over the head with a frying pan. Again, taking an image that only provokes fear and terror, you know, such as the image of a stormtrooper or, you know, a fascist authoritarian leader and um, exposing it as a buffoon who's sort of easily cartoonishly um, uh, uh, foiled through uh, slapstick violence, I think is, is it's, it's satisfying, but it's also political. It does more work than just mere relief or catharsis. It really like takes an image of terror and defeats that fear with laughter. Yeah, um, and you know, to your point too about the, the, the person, you know, taking those notes of Hinkle's speeches and those clarifications, um, that kind of leads me into my next question, which is, you know, I know that you've taught a course on fake news and obviously this film introduces Dictator Hinkle as though watching a news broadcast, right? There's like a uh, voiceover narration in that style of a news broadcast introducing the character. And the voiceover also notes that there were quote prepared statements, right? That were given to networks. So in what ways are those two things critiqued in the film, news media and propaganda? I think very explicitly, um, maybe at times not even satirically, the power of the radio and news propaganda um, and political speeches, political speeches like Hitler's rallies were staged for the camera, right? For Lainey Riefenstahl's documentary gaze, how, um, uh, how dangerous um, modern mass technology is as a medium of propaganda that can spread the gospel of fascism uncritically. So, um, I mean, I've, like it's that, that's always the manifest meaning, meaning, at least in this film, in contrast perhaps to the great dictator that when mass communications media are at play, um, you know, it's, it's a powerful tool that, that Chaplin ultimately appropriate, I'm sorry, the Jewish barber ultimately appropriates at the end to kind of um, make this appeal to potentially pacifism, but also humanitarian solidarity. I'll speak, since you mentioned this, the freshman seminar I taught on fake news, this term itself is really interesting to me because when I was in college, fake news pretty unambiguously referred to the Daily Show. Fake news as like a popular signifier was almost synonymous with um, uh, satire and political news pat parody with a strongly satirical bent. Um, and that changed quite abruptly around the 2016 election. Um, but I think the term still retains a degree of instability, fake news between satire that plays on the instability between truth and lies through strategies of irony, um, you know, like humorous incongruity in order to get at a deeper truth that maybe is not immediately manifest. And fake news is just like straight up disinformation, clickbait, manipulative propaganda. And I, own, I, I almost wish the great dictator sometimes had a more dialectical relationship between those two variants of fake news as satirical play 
versus just like bald faced disinformation. At sometimes um, those two discourses of say political satire versus um, kind of preaching to the converted feel too compartmentalized. And that was an issue that some critics um, in the US in particular had at the time, as much as audiences loved the great dictator, the great dictator, it was hugely successful in the box office. Critics gave it really mixed reviews, partly because it was overhyped. Um, but one reviewer for the New York Post called uh, the Barber's speech at the end, a great artistic boner. And I'm not misspeaking, he used the word boner. Um, but really that the didacticism and the satirical entertainment value felt too disjointed from one another. That was the gist of the critique. And similarly with maybe what I think is, is potentially the superior or at least my personal favorite early 1940s Hollywood anti-Nazi satire, the Ernest Lubitsch film, To Be or Not To Be, which is even more broadly farcical um, than The Great Dictator. Uh, reviewers accused it of mixing um, comedy and melodrama and asking and asking audiences to laugh too soon about like Blitzkrieg and concentration camps. These were references not in The Great Dictator, but in To Be or Not To Be, which came out in early 1942, a few months after uh, Pearl Harbor in America entered the war. There's a joke about a Nazi official who's known as Concentration Camp Earhart. Um, it's, it, it really goes there and, and viewers kind of prickled at the combination between comedy and political referentiality, but there was a little bit of that backlash against The Great Dictator as well. There was a point too that you made earlier about this idea that fake news somehow gets us to potentially a greater truth or a deeper truth. I wonder if you can say more about that. Yeah, I mean, that was always the conceit of truthiness as political, sorry, <laughs> I've had a long day. This is a few synchronous classes today with some major tech snafus in the morning. Um, Stephen Colbert defined truthiness as the fact that you don't think with your head, but that you know with your gut. And obviously Colbert himself is kind of parodying, impersonating a Fox News host persona like uh, Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity in that role. And it has to do, I worry now that because in our current post-truth climate, the relationship between truth and lies has become too radically destabilized, that satire can no longer play in that gray area between um, kind of earnest, sober, fact-based truth and playful distortion that exposes political corruption, reveals a kind of cynical rhetoric as you know these news parody shows do so well. Um, because our problem is precisely the opposite. You know, we need more earnest, fact-checked science to be widely believed. And in a sense, um, satire only participates in further distorting the kind of referential relationship between truth realities and just bald-faced disinformation. I don't know, I still, I'm still a, a junkie of um, news parody, but um, I, it felt really effective um, for getting at a, um, 
just a mode of political honesty that maybe network news broadcasters and mainstream news outlets found unspeakable for one way or another. I think anti-capitalist satire is still where it's at, anti-racist satire or satire that speaks a truth in a way that mainstream discourse won't. So way beyond Saturday Night Live or network comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's to your earlier point that like it's really a coping mechanism, especially in these times, you know? Yeah, it really is. Um, so, you know, I wanted to also talk about Charlie Chaplin's um, everyman character as well in the film, because in addition to playing the dictator, obviously, he also plays a character who's referred to in the credits as a Jewish barber. Um, so do you see this as a deliberate attempt to say oppression could happen to anyone because he's unnamed? What is the effect of leaving that character unnamed? Oh, that's such a good question. And I like your interpretation very much, Miguel. I mean, I think Chaplin's tramp persona as well um, is meant to be a kind of allegorical everyman, you know, everyone, um, even though he's so kind of dejected and frumpled with his sort of crushed bowler hat and, um, you know, like CD suit and cane. Um, there's something that's always so relatable about Chaplin's tramp persona. And there've been various debates about whether the barber is really all that different from the tramp. To what extent is the Jewish barber a departure from the tramp? In some ways, by being named as Jewish, the barber is more marked, less allegorical than the tramp who really could be everyone. Um, but I like the way in which the great dictator plays in between those two roles. Like after um, the barber, returns to the ghetto um, with amnesia, he's he's dressed in the trademark um, bowler hat and cane, and it's only once he's awakened to the political reality and the cruelty and madness of the current moment that he sort of, um, his physical appearance is adapted slightly to the persona of the Jewish barber. And then when there's the sort of brief detente, when after um, Schultz intervenes and Epstein potentially makes a loan to Hinkle, and there's a lifting of um, oppression against the Jews in the ghetto. There's that sort of burlesque sequence where Hannah's in like Bavarian costume and Chaplin um, uh, returns to the bowler hat and cane. In a way, it's like he's walking back into the persona of the tramp. And then, so the Jewish barber, I read as a way of signaling to your point, yes, this oppression and tyranny could happen to anyone, but if the tramp is ever accused of ducking his head in the sand and not intervening in politics enough, the Jewish barber um, is maybe Chaplin's way of crossing a certain threshold into the political, into the topical and associating his own star persona more with an outspoken political position. Um, it's certainly against fascism. Uh, if not also against capitalism um, increasingly uh, uh, later throughout his career. Yeah, I, you briefly touched on this point in my next question too, which is that, you know, this character, the barber is depicted as this very pure hearted, very innocent figure, um, partly because he had been hospitalized since the end of World War I and uh, hasn't lived through Tomania's cruelties. And so he's kind of able to see through the absurdities of fascism. Um, and there's even a comment in the, in the chat that brings out that like, part of the efficacy of these kinds of figures is that there's an outsider status to them. Um, but I wonder if you could speak more to that. Like, what? why is this kind of figure effective here? Has this figure changed over time, do you see, in these kinds of political satires? 
Yeah, the sort of naive, innocent, ingenue character has been a trope of comedy for so long. You know, I don't, I don't know the the origins of this trope, but um, I, I think it's still ubiquitous in say like fish out of water comedies, the romantic comedy genre, even the sort of um, lighthearted, happy-go-lucky like buddy characters on a show like Key and Peele mm -hmm. or Broad City, that kind of like sketch comedy variety vibe. Um, uh, w. Kemma Bell is someone, a, a um, political comedian who I think also often um, uh, assumes the guise of an innocent or ingenue. And it's also sort of how um, uh, Colbert's ironic satire operates less in his late night role, but more on the Colbert Report, the way he sort of um, uh, exaggerates his naivete in order to reveal something about a person he's interviewing or a situation. But yeah, I remember there was this video that went viral after the 2016 election depicting this guy who had like been in a coma for several months and he woke up and, and his friend is like, oh, by the way, Donald Trump is president and all of these other unimaginable things have happened. And um, yeah, the, I think that the barber's amnesia is a very effective plot device for not just emphasizing the rupture between the post-war world of, you know, the, the late 19 teens, even, you know, in the wake of the traumas of World War I and the um, rise of, of fascism in Nazi Germany. Um, obviously it operates on that level, but also, um, oh, it's been a long day. I had it was good. This was going to be really good. This was really like my my slam dunk sub answer to your question. But I I have confidence it will come back later. In addition to the Barbara character, I did also want to talk about the um, character played by Paulette Goddard, uh, Hannah. Mm -hmm. uh, because you work extensively on on silent film comedians, I wanted to talk about her um, because she was the actress was married to Chaplin and worked with him on Modern Times. Um, and now is in The Great Dictator. Can you talk a little bit more about the actress and her transition to sound, and then also the role that she plays in the film as Hannah? Mm -hmm. So she was, Paulette Godard wasn't a silent film star. I think she um, like started with the talkies, Modern Times, as far as I know, was really her only significant silent film role in Chaplin's uh, work in modern times and The Great Dictator, I think she's more kind of coded around pathos and the integration of melodrama than comedy. And this is like, I mean, the gender politics of slapstick, particularly in silent cinema is really my wheelhouse. It's my fascination. And I think that part of the reason women, despite their extensive participation in the slapstick genre as comedic performers have been written out of the history of slapstick is because audiences have always been allegedly, if not actively uncomfortable, laughing at images of comical violence inflicted on women's bodies, right? Which is the whole basis of slapstick. It's like laughing at someone being horribly injured, banged over the head with a frying pan. Um, and it's interesting to me as much as, you know, Chaplin can almost combust when he gets a grenade in his pants on the front, almost fall out of an airplane that crash lands after, you know, like plummeting from the sky upside down. And of course, any number of stormtroopers, but also the Jewish barber himself are, you know, banged over the head, including by Hannah. 
when Hannah protests the stormtroopers' cruelty and they pelt tomatoes at her, like cue the melodrama music. Um, there's a little bit of a physical gag in the barbershop when he's shaving her face and she comments about like women not having whiskers. Um, but then, you know, quickly sort of pivots from potential slapstick involving shaving a woman's face to a makeover movie. I'm like, am I watching The Great Dictator or now Voyager? So I think that really melodrama and pathos and a kind of break from absurdity adhere to Hannah's character in ways that are maybe unnecessary. And I don't know if it's relevant or not to comment <laughs> of Chaplin's Four Wives. Um, Paulette Goddard was the only one who was who wasn't basically a minor when they got married. He was still significantly older than her, but of his other three wives, Mildred Harris, his first, I think was like 16 or 17. When they married, she was also a talented silent film actress. Um, you know, he was in his early fifties when he married Una Chaplin, who was like, I don't know, 18 or something. Um, so it just, you know, in the era of time's up and hashtag me too, it feels relevant to, to comment on this. Um, Chaplin, Chaplin's reputation for not always being so great toward women and a bit of a womanizer. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up some really great points too with regards to like the, the this kind of like generic split between comedy, slapstick and, and melodrama um, because the film isn't entirely comedic, right? Like there are moments of, of genuine fear. I mean, the, the scene that really sticks out to me is that one where the stormtroopers are raiding Hannah's home to capture the barber. And there's like this really rousing moment where the camera lingers on the image of caged birds. And we hear these off-screen sounds of the stormtroopers breaking into the barbershop and there's a woman screaming. So I just wonder how necessary is it to combine comedy with this very sobering sadness, especially in light of Chaplin's comment that he made in his 1964 autobiography that he would not have made the film had he known the extent of the Holocaust. Yeah, wow. And that's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that quote. And who knows whether, you know, how sincere he was being or what he meant by it. And, um, you know, his autobiography, hindsight is always 2020. I think those moments are incredibly powerful. And especially given how quickly events were unfolding in realities, in addition to perceptions of reality, um, were changing amid the film's production. That was also a way of signaling satire can only go so far. There's a kind of referential trauma that um, you know, can't be depicted either through broad farce or even through kind of um, uh, you know, like heart-tugging melodrama because it's really about what lies beyond the frame, what's unseen within the image during those moments that you've just nicely described. Um, but in terms of kind of intermingling pathos, melodrama, um, slapstick, you know, and, and other modes of comedy. That's, that was always kind of core to Chaplin's shtick, at least since, you know, like the 1920s gold rush, the kid, woman of Paris, city lights, um, certainly modern times. I mean, it's what makes, it's partly what makes the tramp so relatable. And his films are very Manichaean, you know, he and his friends are often battling against evil antagonists like they're his films are very much about like the battle between good and evil that's kind of the psychological hook and comedy you know a lot of comedy especially comedy involving extravagant images of physical violence involves um, necessitates having a certain amount of 
emotional and aesthetic distance from the kind of events unfolding on screen, right? Comedy equals tragedy, but plus time. Um, Mel Brooks said comedy is tragedy that happens to other people. Or if I cut my finger, that's a tragedy. If you fall down a sore and die, like that's a comedy. I don't know. I think that one's a little bit brutal. But melodrama is the hook. It's what make a, makes us invested in the characters and really committed to the story, maybe in ways that just broad farce, like a film like Duck Soup, um, couldn't do as, as poignantly. Yeah. And we also talked about briefly the use of sound in the movie. And I wonder if we can get back to that point as well, which is that, you know, for those who might not, no, the great dictator. The great dictator is Chaplin's first true sound film. I mean, the modern times kind of dabbled a little bit um, with some sound, but this is, you know, from start to finish. Um, you know, th there's dialogue and sound effects, and I wonder if you can talk about how sound is used both as both as a source of subversive humor. I mean, there's using language as gibberish, and also as a rallying cry in the final speech that appeals to the sense of common humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the satirical effect of the gibberish. I, I wish I could impersonate Chaplin impersonating Hitler, but I can't, so I'm not even going to try. But I think the play, like we mentioned, the play with the temporality of like, you know, short punchy statements being translated at length and vice versa. Um, I find like gibberish as a kind of audio transcription of slapstick burlesque and pantomime, I feel like you know, screwball comedy was so popular in the late 30s and early 40s. And The Great Dictator doesn't do that so much, like really zippy jokes and language-based innuendo. Like that is not how Chaplin uses sound. I feel like um, the, the gibberish impersonation is almost a way of parlaying the language of physical humor, right? Silent film slapstick into dialogue-based sound. And I think very little of the political speeches are comedic or even meant to read that way, the ones that are not gibberish, right? That particularly the, the speech at the end, which as you put it, is a rallying cry. I think I'm all for the use of sync sound to enhance um, uh, the visual gags, like the bonk of the frying pan you know, the um, explosion of the fuse at the beginning, it makes the gag even funnier. And obviously silent cinema is the biggest misnomer ever because none of these films were ever projected without sound. There was always a live musical accompanist who might use the piano or the organ to sort of underscore the sight gag. As I've seen recently, having attended a lot of international silent film screenings in recent years that the musician does that work. But when the soundtrack can do it, you know, that's, um, all the better. And of course, there's the famous use of Wagner music in, um, you know, the, the globe ballet and then the pop of the globe exploding at the end of Hinkle's dance and um, the, Brahms, the sorry, Brahms Rhapsody um, uh, shortly following in the, the barbershop um, shaving scene. And just like briefly along these lines of how Chaplin was using his voice at the time, he did stump for American interventionism and um, uh, sympathy with the Soviet allies, with Soviet comrades more and more uh, after America entered the war and also kind of raising popular consensus and supports for America to help open a second front in Europe, right? Planning for the D-Day invasion was well underway.
away by, um, or at least in the air by 1942, Chaplin did um, perform the speech that he gives the end of the film um, around uh, you know, uh, publicity, but also as a propaganda effort in support of the war around screenings of the film. And then increasingly into like 42, he started improvising more and more, not limiting himself to the Jewish barber's language, but like just kind of improvising his own, um, uh, as he put it at the time, progressive arguments for, you know, su supporting the allies, opening up a, se a second front in Europe and increasingly um, aligned his own star image as a popular comedian with his political views in ways that got him into trouble with the HUAC committee, with the rise of McCarthyism after the war. Yeah, and one of the other questions I had too was about the, the legacy of the great dictator, which I think is pretty clear. Um, I mean, you and I talked the other day about recent satires, uh, movies like Jojo Rabbit and The Death of Stalin, I think probably owe some debt to this film. But I was curious about what would have been inspirations for the great dictator. So what are those comedic predecessors for this kind of political satire? Uh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that like Chaplin's greatest influence is always Charlie Chaplin. Um, I mean, he's like riffing on so many like tropes that he himself, you know, is key to devising. Um, I mean, other references that come to mind, I've already mentioned Duck Soup from the early 30s, uh, in which there's also uh, Chico plays a character named Chicolini, who's pretty clearly a parody of Mussolini. Um, you know, Groucho Marx plays Rufus T. Firefly. Um, but at the time, actually Duck Soup now is like one of the most highly regarded slapstick comedies from that era of Hollywood. It's really one of my favorite films, but it was sort of panned at the time um, for being too silly in its political topicality. And the Marx Brothers were just like, oh no, we were, you know, we were just in it for a laugh. And then, I don't know, a lot of reviewers were questioning, well then why like make it so on the nose and its depiction of like early 1930s geopolitics. Um, duck soup is definitely a reference. It's much more just like wildly farcical, anarchic in its burlesque. There was a plagiarism lawsuit against the great dictator against Chaplin that he actually settled um, because of its similarity to an early 1921 comedy called King, Queen and Jester, Jester in which his cousin Sid Chaplin actually starred. He settled for a variety of reasons. I don't think he actually plagiarized this film, but the premise was similar that there was a barber and a tyrannical king who looked very, very similar. And that was kind of the present, the premise of the doppelganger comedy. And eventually at the end of King, Queen and Jester, um, I think the barber does have to impersonate the, the mad king. But in a way, The Great Dictator is really unique in terms of how much it was allowed to, if not actively intervene in, frame public conversations about unfolding world political events um, in ways that maybe are unprecedented in cinema, even though, you know, parodies of Teddy Roosevelt or William McKinley were part of early cinema from the beginning. But I think newspaper comics and cartoons played more of that role than film satire. Um, there was a, just, I'll briefly mention, there was a Three Stooges anti-Nazi comedy called You Nasty Spy, spelled with a Z, that came out about nine months before The Great Dictator. But I don't think that was a tremendous source of inspiration for Chaplin. And looking back now at The Great Dictator from the vantage point of 2020, 
is the great dictator still a subversive film is its critique of fascism still effective Oh, what a tantalizing question. I don't know. I want to ask everyone in the room. It pains me. I will never get over Zoom. I love the kind of feeling the room, the body language of people in the audience and just like that, like kind of affective interactivity of an event like this. I will always miss that. I will never resign myself to Zoom in that regard. I will put my thumb on the scale and say, I don't think The Great Dictator is that subversive in 2020 for reasons that we mentioned earlier, because like, no one is a greater, um, you know, parodist of Trump than Trump himself. I mean, he's like a walking self-parody. And also because of how comedy sort of circulates within social media echo chambers, like any sort of hard-hitting anti-fascist satire would really only make its way through audience to audiences who already agree with its politics to begin with. Um, if it did kind of, you know, if it, like the... I don't know, maybe if like alt-right or let's let's be blunt, um, neo-fascist viewers watched The Great Dictator today, authoritarianism looks so different now. It's like polos instead of brown shirts. It's like edgy joke lords on Reddit instead of, I don't know, like radio broadcasting propagandists, although, you know, that's part of neo-authoritarianism as well. I don't know. I, I would have my doubts about how subversive the film is today. It's also, I mean, thinking of the conversations we're having recently about class inequality and systemic racism and sexism, misogyny, transphobia. I feel like, um, you know, it's a very, it's a very white film. Um, I feel like, sorry to bother you is a legit subversive film. So I'm so glad it's programmed in this series. Parasite is, um, an extremely subversive film in my book and the ways they critique uh, neoliberal inequity and structural racism. Um, and I don't know, I'll just say one last thing. We're so used to anti-Nazi satire, right? I grew up with it, with Mel Brooks comedies. Um, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen does a little bit of that um, in his Borat figure, like Woody Allen. It's not I don't know. I like, again, I would love to hear other people's reactions, but um, yeah. And I, in my book, it's not particularly subversive in 2020, but I'm glad we're still engaging with it as a text. And circling back to one other thing that you wanted to say, do you recall that one point that you wanted to make earlier when we were talking about the figure of the barber at all? <laughs> I do actually, it flashed into my head, but at the wrong moment. So thank you for bringing it back. Just that um, I think we're all constantly making these micro adjustments, like things we thought we would never be able to imagine entertaining about the political climate or accept just as the new norm. Like we were all repeating this mantra after the 2016 election, this is not normal, this is not normal. But once um, the unthinkable sort of like um, just meshes with the everyday, with the ordinary, we adjust, we like, we move the line, um, you know, farther and farther um, beyond the thing that we said we'd never be able to accept or tolerate that we would take to the streets and give up all of our comfort and own security in order to protest. I think we keep moving um, the yardstick farther and farther away from where we said it would be after the moment of an initial rupture and trauma. So there's something about the device of, you know, multi-decade long amnesia, 
like the barber is able to react to um, just the incommensurability of the society that he encounters in ways that other people have adjusted to all too seamlessly. Um, and, you know, we talk about this a lot, yeah. Um, predatory capitalism and the coronavirus pandemic, like at what point will we stop making these micro adjustments to allow the system to continue to run smoothly? Like at what point will we not adapt all of our classes seamlessly to Zoom and Blackboard and Canvas? At what point, you know, are we just gonna draw the line and say like, like this is too far, maybe we should all have, you know, like year long amnesia and then, <laughs> <laughs> our appetite for protest would be, I don't know, fired up. That was what I was going to say earlier. So thanks for bringing it back. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what the audience thinks. So we are now able to take questions from the Q&A function on this webinar. Questions have been selected by the Carsey Wolf Center staff. Um, Maggie, one of the questions from our audience is, if the tramp or barber is an everyman, then is the double role suggesting that not only can such oppression happen to anyone, but also that anyone can potentially become an oppressive dictator? That is, the dictator is in all of us. This would certainly jive well with a character like Joe the Plumber, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. um, this empty category of the people. And then there's also a connection, of course, Tramp and Trump. Can you speak at all on that? Yeah, I love that question. I think to flip it again, around again, um, We'd also then have to assume that Hinkle is an everyman. If anyone could, you know, slide into that role or become vulnerable to that role, I think that we're not like we don't all have like an inner authoritarian dictator just waiting to be activated by the right or wrong historical circumstances, but um, that someone who's as much of a total buffoon, narcissist idiot as Adenoid Hinkle can attain that degree of uncontested state power. I think if, if, um, the barber is an everyman. Um, the um, Hinkle impersonation reveals, like, yeah, how how a buffoon can can easily obtain that much power, which maybe is more prescient towards the present day than um, the commentary of the great dictator's own moment. So, yeah, great question. It reminds me too of the towards the end of the movie when Hinkle himself is mistaken, right, for being this. Uh, this kind of everyman figure, right? Where he's like caught as a, as a, I think he's like hunting geese or something, right? On that rowboat. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, there are so many uh, misrecognitions of Polish theater actors who successfully or unsuccessfully attempt to impersonate Hitler in the 1942 film, To Be or Not To Be, the Lubitsch comedy we mentioned, which opens with this theater, this Polish, um, a theater actor, Bronski, who comes on stage in a role playing Hitler and everyone hiles him and Bronski hiles himself, which is of course one of the most hilarious moments of the film, but um, it, it uh, sets the stage for, uh, anyway, I don't wanna to give too much away and I wanna to get to more questions, but um, can I read this question from Bashkar Sarkar? It just sort of caught my eye. Um, sure. As Lauren Berlant puts it, genre flailing is a mode of crisis management that arises after an object or object world becomes disturbed in a way that intrudes on one's competence about how to move in it. 
we genre flail, I like genre flail as a verb phrase, so that we don't fall through the, through the cracks of heightened affective noise into despair, suicide, or psychosis. We improvise like crazy where like crazy in quotation marks is a little too non-metaphorical. Um, yes, well put. And I've been really interested in Lauren Berlant's work on recently on humorlessness, but also her discussion of the waning of genre and the fraying of fantasy as ordinary life becomes increasingly unhinged from um, media genres in cruel optimism. And I've been thinking about that a lot, about kind of genre hybrid satires. And this is one of the things that makes Parasite so subversive to me about how the genre in the film completely falls apart about two thirds of the way through, it can no longer contain its own fantasy of upward mobility because the first two thirds of Parasite really is a slapstick comedy in a lot of ways. It's broad farce about kind of conniving tricksters who sort of fail up into class mobility. Um, and then trauma erupts. The gag of someone getting slapped in the face with a cake is simultaneous with a character another character being violently stabbed and murdered. Um, so I like the way films like Parasite and I think more effectively, the different genres at play in Chaplin always feel oddly compartmentalized. Um, they're not put into collision the way um, satire, terror, anxiety, um, melancholia, all of these sort of incompatible affective modes, the way they're activated at cross purposes to basically um, call for a new mode of fantasy, um, right? To provoke us to try to imagine a different kind of world in anti-capitalist films like um, Parasite, but also um, a lot of uh, racial dystopia themed satire, certainly Sorry to Bother You, Get Out and Us come to mind, Lovecraft Country, I think um, plays between genres really, um, uh, poignantly. So yeah, that's been on my mind a lot. Thank you, Bhaskar, for that question. Another question um, quotes from Theodore Dorno, who famously wrote that the great dictator loses all satirical force and becomes obscene when a Jewish girl can hit a line of stormtroopers on the head with a pan without being torn to pieces. For the sake of political commitment, political reality is trivialized. And this question wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so Adorno was, as much as, you know, he called fun a medicinal bath that the culture industry keeps um, prescribing in the culture industry essay, he actually was really into Chaplin. Um, they had a famous encounter in LA in the mid 40s, um, where Chaplin allegedly saved Adorno from a, a, a social gaffe. I won't go into detail about it now. Um, but I think Adorno called Chaplin, like he compared him to like a vegetarian Bengal tiger um, who you don't expect to pounce on you or who pounces on you when you least expect it. But yeah, and this speaks to the quotation that you read from Chaplin's autobiography that he never would have made the film if he had known um, the realities that were happening out of frame, you know, beyond the pale of comedy that can't even be thematized through off-screen trauma. So um, yeah, I share your concern. And that's of course, brilliant Patrice's question um, that uh, the film is a little bit too on the nose. It um, uh, trivializes um, 
you know, on the one hand, satire defeats fear with laughter, but it also trivializes political trauma and tyranny that we really need to be taking extremely seriously and not, you know, engaging through the vein of like lighthearted slapstick gags where a Jewish girl can hit a line of stormtroopers on the head with a pen. It, you know, the, the danger of that obviously is that it at least leads viewers to underestimate their enemy, though I'm sure Adorno's critique is operating on a much more complex level. There's a, another comment slash question from Tyler to, that builds upon Patrice's question, which is that one of the reasons the final speech sticks out so strangely against the rest of the film is precisely because of the way it doubles down on a faith in those enlightenment values of scientific progress and positivistic reason that for critics like Adorno and others, in many respects, subtend the Nazi project. Much current political satire similarly derides Trump for his abandonment of reason and reinvests in the power of scientific authority. How do we think through this strange impasse in relation to the emergent problems of fake news and misinformation that we addressed earlier? Wow, that's such a rich question. Thank you, Tyler. I don't even know where to begin. Um, just reading it through. Um, I agree with your critique of the speech at the end. Um, I think modern times is more critical of the kind of industrial apparatus of enlightenment and particularly its exploitation of the worker, of the proletariat, which is, I mean, partly due to the politics of the popular front, that kind of language of communism or class critique is something that Chaplin, but even the Communist Party in America were turning away from in the late 30s and 40s in lieu of this kind of language of progressivism, right? Progressive was the word um, uh, brother in arms rather than comrade, which was obviously more Soviet coded. Um, so yeah, I'm not completely, like I, I think, I don't know, the broad sort of anti-war, pacifism, come interventionism, humanitarian appeal at the end sort of falls flat for me. But to the second part of your question, um, much current political satire similarly derides Trump for his abandonment of reason and reinvests the power of scientific authority. I mean, I think we need to also think about democratizing the power of scientific authority and the language of expertise in order to reinvigorate it. I mean, it's no longer, uh, that's one of the most dangerous things about Trump and Trumpism and just the fragmented landscape of the internet, how it, um, you know, undermines just a basic belief in science, right? That if there is a, an effective vaccine, you should take it, that climate catastrophe is real, you know, and I'm sure I'm just preaching to the choir, so I don't need to um, enumerate all of these dangers, but um, how does this, how do we think through the strange impasse in relation to the emergent problems of fake news and misinformation that you addressed earlier? I don't know, Tyler, I wish I knew the answer to the question. Um, by watching The Great Dictator. Thank you again, Maggie, for sitting down with us. Um, thanks everyone else for sitting down with us tonight. The Carsey Wolf Center series on subversives, of course, continues throughout this fall, and we hope to see you again soon. So have a good night. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.